Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It is good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to our podcast, Relentless Truth, wherever, wherever you get your podcast, Please also go to our website, johnwarrenmedia.com, for more information about our work. Well, uh, you can also uh, send an email to john at johnwarrenmedia.com or use our contact form on the website. It is such a joy to hear from you. I'm delighted to get to bring these thoughts to you each week and your your uh, feedback is and uh, and encouraging words are so appreciated well we're, we're talking uh, for just these two weeks last weekend this one about the u.s constitution and i know it can sound like an abstract conversation but i think one of the challenges in our country today among many and i think these two are related is our 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 social norms have changed dramatically and our interpretation of the way we value civics or specifically the US Constitution has also changed those things are related the first is causal to the latter i think but we are we are left with this document getting disrespected just almost daily. There was there was yesterday uh, a Senate hearing with a with a senior member of the Biden administration, and he just absolutely obfuscated and and didn't want to answer the Senate's questions. And I I just I, as as they're talking, I'm thinking about the advice and consent role of the Senate to the president, the importance of the Senate, the fact that he's under oath, and and it's just disappointing. It it is uh, disappointing that he would just sit and. Avoid perjury barely, but but obfuscate and uh, and and kind of dance around the issue. Well, we we've been talking about the role of the Congress, and you know by now that we have a bicameral Congress, two chambers, the House and the Senate. And I was talking last time about the elastic clause at the end of the last episode of Relentless Truth. And, and today, I, I want to pick up by just talking briefly about the, the theory, the constitutional theory behind Section 8 of Article 1. You will hear by the more astute members of the media, like James Rosen and others, you will hear, uh, those who cover government, you'll hear references to Section 8 powers. Well, those are the enumerated powers of the Congress. They are spelled out in, in detail. Now, one thing I, I want to I mention is that that, that detail, yeah, if you think about it, was written late in the 18th century. And these men did a good job, as, as offensive and shameful as some of our history is from this period, as much as I'm troubled by the fact that approximately 25 of the 55 delegates were slave owners, 
as uncomfortable as that is to talk about, as 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 tension filled as some of these discussions are, as challenging as the three fifths compromise is to explain. And I went there last time. If you want to hear a discussion of that, go back and listen to the last episode immediately preceding this one. But as, as awkward and tension filled as all that is, this is a beautiful, enduring document. There's just one more governing document, one constitution that is more enduring than this one, as I recall. And, and it's one of our state constitutions. And I, I, I want to say it's Connecticut, but I could be wrong. But it is a state constitution. It might be Massachusetts. I don't know. I should have looked it up. But anyway, here we are with this this section eight, and it's I, you know I I uh, one of the things that 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 I don't like I, I troubles me a little bit is the way our law schools have students, uh, future lawyers, study the Constitution. They study the the writings about the Constitution, court cases about the and that's that's all wonderful but rather than reading the constitution and studying its original intent and I know some of you who are law school professors who teach constitutional law are saying wait a minute I make my students I have my students read the document and we talk about its original intent and original intent is is ambiguous and I know all those challenges good for you if you have your students actually study read understand the document itself and the history around it the 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 writings that i focus on that i want all of us to focus on because i think they're informative to this end are the ones leading up to the u.s constitution the the federalist papers the the articles of confederation that we talked about last time uh some of the writings of of of, of john adams thomas jefferson james madison george washington the the Here's what was going on at the time. And, and, and that, those, those documents, all that writing helps us understand where they're coming from. And I would, I would include a robust study of the Declaration of Independence, even though it's not really a governing document. And I, I know that sounds a little crazy, but it, it, it's not law for us. I think that would be helpful to your study as well. Well, section eight, I, I, I want to convince you that of, of this fact, there are a couple of other places in this constitution, this document, which, which has less than 6,000 words. I know that's shocking to many of you, but it's not a long document by essay standards even, but, but I want, to, I want us to become convinced that Section 8 enumerates the primary powers of Congress. And, and that means that if Section 8 and these couple of other places where, where some of the powers of Congress are referenced, if the Constitution doesn't enumerate the power, then the Congress doesn't have it. And I think to understand and appreciate that, you have to understand, we have to understand where they were coming from. And that is, they were, they wanted, and 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 there there were there were disparate views in the room for sure, but primarily as a group, the consensus was to limit the size 
of government. These 55 men, 39 signers of the U.S. Constitution, would have never imagined a government as sprawling, as big as this one. I don't know whether it's it's accurate or not. I'm not sure how you how you where you'd start and stop this count, but I I, I read a statistic that says that 40 percent of, of of working Americans work for directly or indirectly some form of government. That sounds really high to me. That probably includes government contractors. But 40%, I'd say it's half that, 20. That, that's a lot. Our founders wouldn't have thought that possible. So there are all of these powers, this in Section 8, uh, these enumerated powers that are laid out. And it starts with, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. So you can't tax one state more than others as a federal government. All states are equal. This is a reference to equality, and, and it's, a, it's a wonderful thing that it's, it's repeated here very clearly and delineated here very clearly. And it's also important that this notion of the common defense is referenced. So the, you know, the Congress is involved in the, in the pooling of our resources for the common defense. And, and now we've, we've bridged a gap that the Articles of Confederation have to pay the debts and is, is mentioned here. So, so now we're addressing money a little more concretely. And then there's this phrase and general welfare of the United States. And there's been great debate, and I'm not really going to go there, about what, what is the general welfare. It, it's, it's the general welfare. Read the words. The, my, my, my admonition would be, let's read the words the way they were written. Well, what does the general welfare mean? Does it mean a welfare state? Does it mean the New Deal? Does it imply social justice? Does it imply a certain standard of living that we would have through the uniform, a uniform basic income or universal basic income? No, I don't think it really addresses those things. It is talking about the welfare of the United States in general, and I believe it's that simple. But we've got some other references that are problematic, that are that are difficult to understand and have been interpreted uh, widely over the years. So the Congress can do all kinds of things, and I'm not going to read every one of them, but borrowing money on the credit of the United States is one of them, uh, of course. And, and, you know, we have $32 trillion of debt. We talk about that a lot here on Relentless Truth. You know how problematic that is as rates continue, interest rates especially, continue to go up. To regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states and with the Indian tribes. And I talked last week about the Affordable Care Act, among other things, this and the several states and among the several states to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states is one of the one of the clauses that. Uh, believe it or not, that's called the Interstate Commerce Clause or the Commerce Clause, which allowed Congress to to approve the Affordable Care Act. 
And that part of the Affordable Care Act uh, withstood scrutiny by the Supreme Court. The the mandate to participate or pay a fine, uh, which the Obama administration called a, a tax, uh, did, did not hold up that, that mandate, that must purchase mandate or pay a fine. That did not hold up, but this particular element did. And and there's to to establish a uniform rule of naturalization is next and uniform laws on the subject of bankruptcies. If you file bankruptcy in the United States, you do it in a federal bank bankruptcy court and the rules are uniform. A, a person in in Oregon doesn't file differently than one in Ohio or New York. The the bankruptcy rules are identical from state to state. And then there's to coin money, regulate the value thereof and of foreign coin and fix the standard of weights and measures. Uh, we don't need to talk about that a lot. You know that there was kind of a struggle on, on which currency is our country, uh, currency um, back in uh, this period. And, and so this, this was important that, hey, there's, there's one currency and it is the United States currency. You know about the gold standard and all those things. There's no point in discussing that in terms of the enumerated powers of Congress. And then there's a, a clause that allows them to punish for uh, of counterfeiting. So again, uh, more on currency gives them, gives them some teeth. And then to establish post offices and post roads. So, you know, even back then there was, there was this notion of let's, let's have the federal government involved in the distribution of the mail. And then there's pr promoting uh, uh, the progress of science and useful arts. Um, most experts say this is this is Ben Franklin's engagement here. And then uh, uh, tribunals inferior to the Supreme Court. So so Congress can establish other court like bodies that are inferior to the Supreme Court. When you talk about, pardon me, Article three, you know that the judiciary is addressed there and 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 the constitution just says that you know the supreme court is created and and then such as such inferior courts and and so this is just making clear that the congress is the party that creates those courts and and what we have in this country so you know is the us district court which is where you would go if you were involved in a federal case it's the first layer and then the us circuit court of appeals and there are some specialty courts there's a tax court we already mentioned taxation, bankruptcy court, and so on. And then we talked about this last time, to declare war and so on, to raise an armies, to provide and maintain a navy. Air Force isn't mentioned because we didn't have planes yet. And then other military references are in the next couple of sentences. And then there's to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district as made by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of government of the United States. So they anticipated a, a 10 square mile area. And as you know, during the Adams administration, it became uh, our, our seat of our government became Washington, D.C. and has been ever since. And then there's the, the necessary and proper clause, which we, we talked about. We, we uh, 
talked about the elastic clause last time, and I want to talk about just a couple of others that are referenced later here in in Article One, uh, because I I think this is important. This is kind of ignored section, but I think it's some. I, I think it's fun. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's fun and beautiful and powerful and necessary, and and we shouldn't ignore it. Uh, we ignore it maybe because of its intricacies or complexity. But Section Nine, the one after the this list of enumerated powers, says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. Well, that's that's really interesting because uh, Latin students, you know, that habeas corpus has the idea of of the body, uh, show the body, or show me the body, reveal the body, or have the body appear. Well, the writ of habeas corpus, that this thing that the Constitution says cannot be suspended, is our right to be charged with a crime. We can't, and there are a couple of amendments that go on to to, to flesh this out a little more, which which I believe was necessary. But even they are brief. But there's this notion that you can't be arrested and held just because. Now we. We walk right up to the line like we do with so many things in that regard sometimes. But the idea is that King George at the time and other governments had political prisoners who were not charged with crimes. You can't hold a person who who has not been charged. This this writ of habeas corpus gives us the right to appear in court and, and, and be arraigned, be actually charged with a crime and plead either uh, innocent or guilty. So this writ of habeas corpus is is a, a, a wonderful thing and it can't be suspended. Well, here's another one that you probably don't think about. And thankfully, we don't think about it because it's, it's not allowed. It, it says no bill of attainder or ex post facto law shall be passed. Let's, let's talk about those in two pieces. A bill of attainder is a law that adjudicates guilt and could, would, in most cases, sentence a person for a crime. So the Congress can't decide if, imagine if one party had complete control of Congress. Now, now that's not very likely to, to happen in this country because we're, we're so polarized. But, but imagine if one party was, you know, say it was the Democrats right now who had all 535 seats of both chambers and imagine if they said, well, this Donald Trump guy, he gives us anxiety. He's, he doesn't have the best interest, interest to the country at heart. And look, he's been accused of some crime. So let's pass a bill adjudicating him guilty and sentencing him to prison for 20 years. We'll let him out after the election, but we want to put him away. Well, no, Congress can't do that. That, that would be a bill of attainder. Congress cannot pass a bill of attainder. It's a wonderful thing the system of checks and balances. We say that, and we don't explain what that looks like. Well, the Senate's advice and consent role with the president, and and, and we're going to talk in a minute about their ability to impeach, I mean, really remove from office and what that, what that actually means. It, it's, really, it's really curious. Um, and, and, uh, and then there's the, the, the legislative branch can't really interfere in the judiciary. And then there, there's the executive branch 
which really can't interfere, although it, although it interfaces with the others, it certainly can't interfere with the judiciary. It can, it can nominate new members to the Supreme Court, but there's a process that includes the legislative branch for populating that court. But, but the, the, the executive branch, although, yes, the vice president can vote to break ties in the Senate and that kind of thing, they're not involved directly in passing legislation in the normal course. And, and, and the Supreme Court is not involved in the passing of legislation. The Supreme Court simply determines whether or not certain measures are constitutional and, and, and on, on the other hand, whether or not uh, they, they, the Constitution has been correctly applied. So whether the law is constitutional is one test and then whether or not the Constitution is being directly applied either procedurally or otherwise. So uh, this... This bill of attainder really says, no, legislature, you can't adjudicate guilt. You can't play the role of the judiciary. And that's just important to know. And I know it's confusing right now in the press where, you know, the Justice Department is part of the executive branch. Well, that's different. And, and the FBI and the CIA and the, all, all of those people and a bunch of lawyers who, who work for justice uh, prosecutors and the like, those those uh, those are part of the executive branch, and 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 that that role, the attorney general role, is one that is appointed by the president, approved by the Senate, and and that can that can be a little confusing, but the Constitution makes it clear here and a couple of other places in amendments. That, that the legislature cannot adjudicate guilt, cannot engage in the judicial process directly. They can pass laws that make certain activities legal or illegal. They can, they can certainly do that. They can certainly impact the criminal code and the civil code, but they, but they can't pass a law that adjudicates guilt. And the other one that was mentioned, you know, it, it might have escaped you when I was reading it because I locked on to Bill of Attainder, but ex post facto law, no ex post facto law shall be passed. What on earth is an ex post facto law? I think of the logic, a logical fallacy, post hoc ergo propter hoc, um, uh, when I think of an ex post facto law just because of that word after. So an ex post facto law is a law that gets applied after the fact. This is a nice, tidy, little, convenient thing to have in the Constitution. There's a lot of uh, uh, constitutional theory, a lot of interpretation of the Constitution comes from this place. There was an aversion to tyranny on the part of these colonists. And these men were smart and knew that they had to put some guardrails up to avoid the risk of tyranny at one end of the spectrum and mob rule, the mob rule of democratic process, democratic elections at the other end of the spectrum, which is why they called it a republic, a representative form of government. Well, an ex post facto law would be one that would be applied after the fact. And so there shall be none of those. In other words, the Congress... Here's the simplest example I can think of, and there are many others that we could talk about. The Congress cannot approve a law today 
with respect to, say, the tax code that would impact your tax rate, my tax rate on yesterday, yesterday's income that we earned or at any point prior to the passage of the bill. And the way that's been interpreted by the courts over the years is, is that Congress, if they do change tax rates, they apply only to the next calendar year, the next fiscal year. So if Congress today rushed, I'm not sure they're up to anything right at the moment in this regard, but if they rushed through a bill that said the Americans tax rate go from mar maximum marginal tax rate goes up to 50% or something crazy because we're all of a sudden deeply concerned about the debt. Well, that could not apply until the next calendar year. And so that means that there's no gotcha moment by by the 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 Congress or 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 the or the courts as a result of something the Congress does. In other words, something that you thought was legal that was in fact legal uh, yesterday or prior it is always going. If it was legal yesterday, it's always going to be legal. A law passed by Congress cannot make a thing that was allowed and not allowed retroactively. And, 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 and this ex post facto law addresses much more than that, but that's one of the elements of this that we all should celebrate. It is really just saying that a law cannot be applied after the fact, whether it's civil or criminal law. That's what an ex post facto law is. How about that? applied after the fact. Can't do that. And that's a good thing because it would leave us in constant jeopardy of Congress turning against us. You see how all of these things are designed to put guardrails around us to protect us from tyranny. So here's another one. States can't tax imports and exports uh, from and to other states. How about that? That's a cool little provision that you don't think about. You know, interstate commerce, this relationship between states being regulated by our government is very important because the colonies were kind of funky in this regard. They, they, sort, of, they sort of did whatever they wanted to do and they had fights among the states and, and, and the, the, you, can't, you can't move here after a certain period. We, we take these freedoms that we have, this liberty, that we have for granted. You can go live in any state you want to live in. I mean, they might treat you like you're strange if, you know, the, you always have the, the, the he or she is not from around here factor. But you can legally go live anywhere you'd like in this country. We, when we take that for granted, don't we? And states can't tax. And there are certain things that, uh, imports and exports, and there are certain things that they, they have to recognize. If you're married in one state, I believe... I'm 99.9% .9 confident you are married in every state. However, concealed carry laws are different from state to state. If you're bankrupt, if you filed bankruptcy in one state, you filed bankruptcy in all states and so on. There are certain medical licenses, legal licenses that you have to get from state to state that are different from state to state that have different rules. The the elections are really peculiar in the Constitution because the federal government has some oversight responsibility, but the primary oversight of elections, the conducting of elections, is done by the states. 
you might have noticed that Florida in the year 2000, when the Gore-Bush controversy arose, had this hanging Chad issue because we, in all of our brilliance here, decided to 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 do use punched holes and a light reader on our ballots. And some older people and probably some younger people too didn't punch the hole hard enough. And the little piece that was vacated to create the hole is that we learned called a Chad. So we had a hanging Chad problem. And when you put that ballot through the light reader, if you left the Chad hanging, the light reader rollers would close the hole, thereby not registering your vote for certain offices, including president. So we had to go back and hand count those ballots. That was a state function. You'd hear in other states, oh, we do it electronically, or we still use paper and and we fill in a, a bubble with ink. That's what we do now in Florida. But that is not standardized from state to state. States have different mail-in rules and so on. Well, the Constitution spells that out. We like that. We don't want the federal government to run all elections. The Constitution doesn't prescribe it quite that way. So the beauty of this Constitution is it makes life challenging. There's tension in it. This this Constitution is not based on, and hear this carefully, the most expeditious thing to do. I'm going to give you an example of that. The Electoral College. It is clunky. Young people sometimes don't like it, but it establishes representatives called electors. This can be confusing when you study the U.S. Constitution because voters are also in other sections of the Constitution called electors. And so this beautiful thing called the Electoral College is is laid out and, and, and that group of people votes on only presidential elections. People are appointed to these roles and, and they vote, and in most states, all but two, I believe, most states are winner-take-all states for the Electoral College. So if a candidate wins by a vote in the popular vote, they get all the electors. Say a state has 20 electors, and, 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 and a candidate wins by five people, five votes. Well, they get all 20. There are a couple of states that divide them on a pro-rata basis. And you can argue, oh my goodness, that isn't fair. I don't like the fact that two times in recent history, we've had a president who won the popular vote, but was not elected president. That seems to me to be uh, anti-democracy. That's an anti-democratic principle. That's, that's not who we are. Well, it actually is who we are. If you, if you, if you wanted to do away with the Electoral College, and, and that... That's all fine if that's what you want to do. But if you do, let me, let me explain what would happen. And you, you probably know this, and I, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but, but here's, here's what would happen in presidential elections. If you say whoever wins the popular vote across the entire country, total all the votes, whoever gets the most wins, period. Popular vote only, no more electoral college. Here's what happens. The candidates would... Pretty much, not, not, not completely, but pretty much just campaign, save their money, and campaign in California, Texas, Florida, and New York. Now, they, they might hit some other big cities here and there because you can get some lots of votes in Chicago, places like Chicago or Detroit or, 
other other big cities um you know maybe but 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 those states that i just mentioned and frankly the big population centers in those states can you imagine la county being the the largest county in the country population wise i can can you can you imagine uh, uh, all the all the campaigning that would go on there and then if you're in kansas or 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 missouri or, or, you know, sometimes we call them the flyover states. You're not going to get a lot of presidential campaigning action, are you? No, they're going to use their money wisely. I mean, you don't, you don't need a single vote from Arkansas or Wyoming or Delaware if you want to be president and win by popular vote. So you see that this electoral college engages our entire nation. And, and I... Uh, maybe I'm old school and uh, even off base. Uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong. Send send an email or or a comment on our contact form. But uh, I I just think it's it's a beautiful way because the president represents the president is the president of all fifty states. He's your president and my president. Uh, no matter where he came from, you know where he was born, where he grew up, where he lived most of his adult life. That person, his or her, that person is still our president and we can not just feel like but know we actually voted i mean i it, it makes me cringe a little when we come down to you know it's midnight uh, after that tuesday and second tuesday in november when we vote for president and and we don't we still don't know who it is and there's some small state with 12 electors on the line and and it's going to boil down to who takes that state well and that's just the way the press plays it i know you're smarter than that it didn't come down to that state. It just looks like it because of the timing. It, it's it's about every state and and until they get the necessary majority. Um, but two hundred and seventy, whatever it is, um, and, and and so uh, that while that feels a bit uncomfortable, and in and the press will make you think, oh, Arkansas determined the the presidency. No, no, they didn't. It just looked that way because of the timing of their reporting of their electors. They didn't elect them any more than any other state that elected that president, voted for that president did. So, um, you know, it spreads the wealth. It makes it makes running for office more cumbersome, complicated. They, they work themselves really hard. But but that's that that's really my thought on on the Electoral College. It, it's it's uh, is it perfect? No, it's not. But is it beautiful? Yes. Does it accomplish its intended purpose? Is, is it? Is it essential in your mind to have the president elected by a majority of the U.S. people and not a majority of the electors based on the system we have in place? If, if that's the case, then fine. If you're that much of an ideological purist in this regard, you need to know that, I, I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating at all, when maybe the 10 largest states at, at most 10, I'm thinking it'd be five or six, but at most the 10 largest states would ever get to know, would ever see a presidential candidate because they are not going to waste money. Now we have national ads. Those, I believe, because of their expense, would go away. They would be all regional or statewide or even local ads for population centers. You might just have the 20 largest cities in the country getting getting most of the campaigning so i see it as as problematic you know two more quick things the state of the union address 
is not required, the speech that is done every year is not required by the Constitution. There's an update, a periodic update required by the Constitution. I find that fascinating. The number of Supreme Court justices at nine is not required by the Constitution. Could be eight, could be 10, could be some other number. Our custom in modern times is nine. And we treat it as if it's almost constitutional to have nine. But you've heard this talk of Supreme Court, these threats of Supreme Court packing. That could be done if one party, particularly the Democrats right now, had control of the executive and the legislative branches. Could be, not saying it would be. And then last, what sort of violations would be required by the president, would warrant impeachment, removal of office in, in, the, in the Senate's advice and consent role? It's really interesting. The Constitution references high crimes and misdemeanors. It's a, it's a, it's a, a phrase taken from Article 2, Section 4, of the US Constitution. It says the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, we know what that is, bribery, we know what that is, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. Here's the problem. You can research this all you want, but the high crimes and misdemeanors is a term of art. It, it, it didn't require any stringent or demanding criteria to determine guilt. The phrase was used historically to cover an extensive range of crimes. It's, it's ambiguous. It's, it's deliberately ambiguous. The Constitution is almost saying here, <laughs> because of this phrase, well, the, the Senate will know it when they see it. And, and it leaves it up for interpretation. I mean, you even heard it used to describe President Trump's activity. It's, it certainly applied to Richard Nixon, didn't it? And now, now you're hearing all kinds of things about the Biden administration. We've, we, we never talked about impeachment 20 years ago. We just didn't. And so now and th this... This really came from the English Parliament, this, this term. It, it was a term that, that would allow impeachment of officials of the crown. And, and it, it, it meant everything from misappropriating government funds or, or just being unfit for office or not prosecuting certain cases or promoting your self-interest ahead of the collective interest. Um, threatening uh, the jury. I mean, it goes on and on. Uh, high crimes and misdemeanors is just ambiguous. And, and when somebody starts telling you, well, here's what it means, be careful to know that what it means is that what, what it was intended to mean is what it meant historically, which is it, it lacked specificity by design. So this is a matter of great debate and we're not going to resolve it here. There, there's... There's kind of a, a, a narrow interpretation that I like that, that really, it really says that the standard for impeachment should be high. That's why it's high crimes. And, and, 
and yet not relegated to certain specific violations. Even though, if you recall from just a minute ago, I mentioned that um, impeachment was 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 one of the one of the issues that was referenced. It's uh, I think it was. I'm, I'm sorry. I, I meant to say treason, treason and bribery, are are two of the specific crimes. So it says treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. So deliberately ambiguous, and 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 that's that. I hope that's helpful to you. I hope maybe you walked away from this episode saying, "Wow, that Constitution is not quite utilized or interpreted uh, in our society quite the way it should be." I I am not looking to criticize to harshly critique. I, I'm just looking to make you aware. I, I hope I pique your interest and you go get a copy of the Constitution online or otherwise and, and read it if you've never read it. You can read and understand it. You might have to look up some of the words. I mean, you, you might not have known the writ of habeas corpus or bill of attainder. Now you do or ex post facto law. But for the most part, you can just read the document and you get a real good idea of, of, of what is being said. And you'll see some of these, some of these weaknesses, some of these things that have proven to be weaknesses over the years there some some of these points of tension are beautiful are designed to 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 be points of tension that the tension between for example mob rule and and tyranny of of a of, an, of a of a monarch of a leader th- th- those things are intentional these checks and balances are clunky and clumsy but beautiful so I hope you'll read the document. I hope you'll appreciate it. I welcome your feedback. I, I take a very direct view of, of this document, have taught it for years to high school 11th and 12th graders who seem to walk away just, I mean, they're, they're brilliant students and they, and they love this study. They seem to really appreciate this study. Many of their families already have educated them and, and they, they'll take things home and, and talk about it. And I get that feedback and it, it's just a, it's just a, a wonderful thing. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of this section of the Constitution. My heart is heavy for our government. Pray for our country. Pray for the world, uh, for, for our government. Pray for our elected officials. This is a critical, critical time in our history. Uh, we have economic risks like I've never seen before with this $32 trillion in debt, and we're not, we're not even headed in the right direction. We are, we, are, we are continuing to escalate the rate of accumulation of debt. And uh, we, are, we also culturally, and the culture makes its way into our government, have some major, major challenges, intersectionality and, and the like. We've, we have left the, the biblical path altogether and are in dangerous, dangerous territory, which is why we're continuing our study of the attributes of God, and I hope you will enjoy that. We'll get back to those next week. We have a few more attributes to discuss, and uh, uh, please pray for God's blessing as this work goes forward. You are a blessing to me. And I'm thankful that you you listen and subscribe to Relentless Truth. So please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcast. We're also on on social media, on uh, various social media outlets. 
uh, you can send along an email to me directly at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren. Please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren. Thank you.